We all like to imagine, at times of great tragedy or urgency, we would not shirk from our responsibilities or hide when others would need us most. We assume we would be the heroes in all situations and we are the only ones who can solve a situation. But time and time again, we fail to stand up when those entirely unconnected to us need us most. We wait until such a time as their afflictions become our afflictions before we begin to think about helping. Often, it is too late for us to have acted by the time we begin movements towards action. But what if this wasn't the case? What if we acted on schedule when others needed us most? What would it take for you to step up to help those you'd never met? It's the life of a Cork woman who answers these questions for us. This is her story. In 1908, in Temple, Cork City, a woman was born. Her name, Mary Elms. Her parents were Quakers, pharmacists and successful business owners, running their own pharmacy in Winthrop Street in Cork City. The family were well known to be highly intelligent and hardworking and dedicated to the betterment of others. Her father was the main driving force behind the business, not because he was a man, which would have been the custom at the time, but rather as her mother was preoccupied with being one of the driving forces for gaining women the right to vote in Ireland. As the family had a bit of money behind them, Mary and her brother attended a school in Blackrock, which was ahead of its times in terms of facilities and teaching. This school, however, enforced a strict censorship rule for its students. There was to be no talks of politics, pro or anti-republicanism, as its narrative swept across the rebel city. This was largely unsuccessful, as students would meet at the back of the school and share the rumours they were hearing of rebels' movements towards the city and how groups of men and women from West Cork were going to come to the city and fight the British and free the Irish people. These stories stirred something in Mary, not necessarily republicanism, but the adventures she imagined these ordinary people must be having gave her too a great sense of adventure. As World War I broke out, Mary watched as the men from Cork City were rallied by British Army recruiters at great meetings held on street corners in the city. Thousands would attend and block the streets to hear of stories of adventures they would be having if they went to France. The cruelty and horrors of war were never mentioned. To play their part, Mary and her mother volunteered to knit socks for the men on the front lines as they heard stories of trench foot. A rotting of the foot due to the sludging through wet trenches without changing or removing the socks of the soldier. Ireland managed to avoid much of the war until May 1915 when the Lusitania, a British ocean liner carrying 1,198 passengers returning from New York was torpedoed by a German U-boat off the coast of Kinsale. Mary and her family immediately went without hesitation and joined the thousands of Irish trying to rescue any survivors. She would later tell her children of the scene she saw that day would haunt her forever. The young child watched and helped as hundreds of people drowned, splashing in the sea in the distance. Some made it onto lifeboats, but the power of the great ship sinking dragged them to the bottom of the ocean. Their screams for help could be heard across the coast. Mary and her family returned to normal life after this, 
concentrating on their shop and even made it one of Cork's most profitable businesses without ever ripping the people off. They were widely noted and regarded for being fair and extremely helpful to all. Things are going well for them until 1920 when the Irish War of Independence finally arrived to Cork City. In December of 1920, the Irish War of Independence was going well for the rebels, particularly in Cork through the success of the likes of Tom Barry and Sean Hales in West Cork. Winston Churchill, as a means of fighting back, created a special group of soldiers known as the Black and Tans. A group of severely mentally damaged British soldiers, suffering from shell shock and other traumas from the trenches in France. They were known for vile actions against the Irish, setting people on fire in main streets to display their power, regardless of the political allegiance of the individual. They would often take pot shots at farmers and young children in fields as target practice. They would even play games. If they found two Republican brothers living together, they would put grenades in both their mouths and give them the pins. To survive, one had to pull the pin of the other. The rebels of West Cork decided enough was enough and they led a series of ambushes against the Black and Tans. They were known across the world as fierce guerrilla warriors. Tom Barry himself leading 120 Irish rebels, mostly farmers and tradesmen, against 1,200 highly trained British soldiers across Barry and winning. The rebels set their sights in an ambush at one of the main barracks of the city. At Dillon's Cross, on the north side of the city, six rebel volunteers, led by Sean O'Donoghue, took a position between the British barracks and the cross. Their goal, to kill the British commander, Captain James Kelly. Five of the men hid behind a wall, whilst the sixth man, dressed as an off-duty British officer, stood in the road. When the soldiers' trucks arrived, he flagged them down. As he flagged them down, soldiers in the barracks spotted the others behind the wall and a gunfight began. As some of the volunteers fell under gunfire, the local people dragged them into a local pub, O'Sullivan's. The Tans marched into the pub, grabbed one of the volunteers by the ear, dragged him to the street, stripped him naked, whipped him and forced him to sing God Save the King until he could no longer stand. 90 minutes after the ambush failed, the city went quiet. The people were clearly devastated that the rebels' efforts had failed. Then, amongst the silence, came a shuddering sound. The barrack gates opened and swarms of British soldiers and lorries exploded into the city. They broke into the houses of those they suspected of having Republican leniencies and herded the people into the streets. They turned them around and forced them to watch as they set fire to their homes and businesses. Those who tried to stop the flames were shot at. Firefighters reported hoses being cut and men hit by bullets. As the city tram went through the city, it was stopped, windows smashed and all the passengers, mostly women, were beaten and left there as the train too was set on fire and sent to parade across the city, in flames. The people on the streets were forced to empty their pockets and all their belongings were taken from them. Businesses were looted and flames were placed everywhere the British soldiers entered. The city centre on Pasig Street, which was the main shopping and business area of the city, was set completely in flames, never to look the same again. The fire and carnage carried on until around 6am 
and the people were forced to watch the entire time as their city burnt. Not only was it the city which had been attacked, but the leader of the volunteers had taken refuge in his friend's house, the home of the Delaney brothers. Bloodhounds hunted him out, and the brothers and an elderly relative were executed without trial on the spot. Sean O'Donoghue had already escaped before the army arrived. There was no proof he was ever there before they executed the Delaney's. Mary and her family, being known to have been kind to all, did not escape the fate of the city, and the shop they had worked so hard to build lay smouldering ash. They did, however, spend the night of the burning helping those around them with any medications or treatments they could. They never stopped to think of themselves or go to save their shop. Mary was encouraged by her parents to leave the city after the fire and get an education elsewhere, away from the war. She went to France for a year and became fluent in the language, thoroughly enjoying her time there. She returned to Ireland to finish her schooling, going to Trinity in Dublin to study French and Spanish. Here she excelled, graduating at the top of her class and she won an award for special achievement from the college. This effectively meant she could do anything she wanted. No other CV in Ireland would match hers with this award. One of her professors noted that she had an unusual intelligence and that she had an exceptionally brilliant academic career. This took her to London where she studied economics. Whilst in London, the Spanish Civil War broke out. Mary was finishing her studies in London. An ordinary person would have read all about the horrors of war, been shocked and headed off to get a 9 to 5 job with their degree. Not Mary. With no medical experience, apart from what she had learnt working in her parents' shop, she stepped up and enlisted in the Sir George Young's University Ambulance Unit, an unpaid volunteer's position. She and her colleagues left their lives of comfort and headed for Almeria, one of the worst war-torn parts of Spain during the time. Initially, she was assigned to a feeding station, helping serve meals to the fleeing refugees. When she began to see the issues they were arriving with, torn off limbs, bloody feet from the miles of walking, extreme sunburns, blindness, Mary began to look into what greater role she might be able to play. She soon gained a reputation as a shrewd and capable administrator who had a direct vision and could not be shaken regardless of the chaos around her. She rose to the top ranks of the aid efforts. As the fascist army approached her position, Mary loaded up vans, ambulances and anything else which could move quickly with thousands of refugees. She was always at the back of the convoy rather than leading it. Not because she was hiding from her responsibilities, but as they passed through the mountains, Mary was setting up refugee hospitals in any cave or hidden gap she could find. Those who followed were going to get their treatment as well. As they moved through the mountains, they were shelled and bombarded with bombs from the fascist army. Ambulances filled with children exploded in front of Mary's eyes, but her focus never waved, always moving forward. When they came to bridges which had been demolished to stop escaping, Mary would find a new route or find a way to pass people across the gorges. They eventually crossed into France and were met with great hostility due to their refugee status. 
the people Mary had saved were not welcome. Mary did not stay with them initially. She went back to Spain and led countless refugee escapes. When it became impossible to gain entry into Spain, Mary turned to the refugee camps to help with the conditions which now met her beloved refugees. She set up workshops, teaching trades, canteens delivering meals, schools to teach French and hospitals across the very limited camps. When word came in of the sudden death of her father back in Cork, Mary refused to return home for the funeral. No replacement could be found for the short time she would be gone and she refused to leave the refugees. In a rare interview, when asked about why she was helping, Mary responded, I like to make people to do things, but I didn't just give orders. I did things myself. I got things done. I had a fixed point of view and I went on with it. I was not emotional, but rather clinical, like a doctor or a soldier. Luckily I became hardened. It allowed me to work consistently. After the war ended, Mary made the south of France her home. She became the head of the Quaker delegation in the region. She lived here peacefully for a number of years. That was until one of the communities of refugees Mary had set up was visited by a group of Nazi soldiers. They rounded up all the Jewish people from the area and took them away. Mary was to go back to war to defend those who needed it most. She rushed to intercept a convoy destined for Auschwitz. This was the first convoy of its kind, and nobody knew what to expect. But Mary, having experienced the Spanish Civil War, and seeing what it did to ordinary people, knew it wasn't going to be anything good. On the 11th of August, 1942, with Nazi soldiers all around the convoy, Mary, using the cover of darkness, rescued nine Jewish children by herself and bundled them into the boot of her car and rushed back to France to place them in a children's home she had set up at the start of the war. The second her car stopped at the safe house, she threw the children out of the boot and went back to get more. She didn't even stop to explain where the children had come from. When she arrived at the safe house for the second time, she had six children in the boot. She made this journey repeatedly and with the help of some colleagues, Mary managed to free 427 children from certain death at the camps. In 1943, after countless journeys back and forth, intercepting the convoys wherever she could and having to go unnoticed, she was eventually caught in a trap by the Gestapo. She was arrested on sight and sentenced to six months in Fresnes Prison, a notorious prison known for horrific conditions, regular torture of inmates and death due to the experimentation on prisoners. Six months may not seem like a long time, but as Ireland was a neutral country during the war, she wasn't seen as a massive threat to the German efforts. She was more of a nuisance. When she was released, she again did a rare interview, and when asked about her time in prison, she simply responded, well, we all experienced inconveniences in those days, didn't we? When the war finally ended, Mary returned to her home in France and married a Frenchman by the name of Roger Denou. They had two children, Caroline and Patrick. 
she only very rarely spoke about what she had done during the war and refused all accolades and awards during her life, which aimed to recognise the brave role she played, including France's highest honours. Mary died in 2002, with very few people having ever heard her story. She was not one to boast or share. She saw it as just doing what needed to be done. Much of her story comes from the letters of others discussing her. The majority of her story, however, comes from the Jewish children who never forgot what she did for him. In 2013, 11 years after her death, they nominated her for the Righteousest Among Nations. Her children and grandchildren accepted this award, which recognises those heroes who helped the Jewish people during the Holocaust. She is the only Irish recipient of the award. Today's music was written, produced and performed by Ryan O'Halloran. Please review and share the podcast. We the Irish is an Ireland production. Ornus Anandum, Gurmagut, Slaninish.